Welcome to The Chris Rawl Show. I have very exciting news. Earlier this week, we launched our website. You can go to www.chrisrawl.com and access five different essays, the newest of which is about Aaron Rodgers and kind of distills my thoughts about following his career uh, and, and a lot of the things that I talk about on this show when it comes to quarterbacks and narratives and fandom and passion and all of the stuff that this show is about. Uh, you can go there right now and read it. We'll also have additional links to episodes of this show. And if you like what I am writing, there is an option to sign up for a newsletter for whenever I write something. It will be delivered directly into your inbox. So go there, browse around, see how you feel. On the podcast front, if you are listening to this and have not yet subscribed to the show, please go and do that. It's very simple. Just go and click the subscribe button on the platform of your choosing. Leave a rating, share it with a friend, all that kind of stuff. Additionally, if for whatever reason you want to get into contact with me, give feedback, share thoughts, give ideas, or just connect in any way, you can email me at chris at ceo.com. Now, on today's episode, postmortem on the 2021 college football season. The 2021 college football season was a welcome return for me to a more normal state of being after the COVID year. I was very fired up during the COVID year for football to return because sports just hadn't really been around. I was so starved for them that I would take them in any form. You could have had Lego people playing football and I would have watched and gambled on it. And so when COVID football came back, I accepted it with open arms, but by the end of the season, there was a part of me that said, okay, I want something that more approximates the sport that I know. Uh, and this year was not completely normal. I still had some COVID stuff, but it was something a lot closer to the college football that I know and love, that getting a stadium packed with 90,000 screaming fans and just letting them loose. Uh, the, the atmosphere that is created in this sport that is really unlike anything else that we have here in the United States of America. So, obviously, I, I've enjoyed the season immensely and ended on Monday night with Georgia beating Alabama in the national title game for their first national title since 1980. And I've kind of been thinking about some of the themes and the things that have been bouncing around in my head as this season has gone on, and especially after Georgia ended up winning the national title. So I kind of just want to go over a couple of those things for this show because uh, the season is done, and that's sad. But I also think right now is a good time to just assess my own personal thoughts on the sport itself um, and kind of the direction moving forward. So the first thing that I thought about as soon as the game ended on Monday night was something that I'm very passionate about and like to talk about a good amount. It's a priority that I believe should be number one on every single team or franchise's list. It's just a very simple idea that you should continually put yourself in a position to succeed. Again, that's just basic, right? It sounds so stupid that why would I even be saying that out loud? But... This is one of those things that has a funny way of working the longer that it goes on if it doesn't result in a win. Uh, the dreaded narratives that can get slapped on a team that 
floats around the fringes of a title race for three years, then five years, then 10 years, and can't really cash in on that, it turns into a millstone around your neck. It turns into not something that's worthy of celebration, but rather something that's worthy of ridicule. Fans get restless. The media will jump in and everyone on first take will slap you with that dreaded can't win label. Now, I don't think any of that stuff is really rooted in reality. Because when you go back to a very basic level and say, if this team is continually putting itself in position to succeed, well, that's what they should be doing. That's all you can ask out of a team or a franchise. And once you do that, you hope that the breaks go your way. And if they don't, then yeah, you don't feel good about it. But when they do, everyone will celebrate your vision. And there's plenty of examples of this over the years, many of which I've talked about on past shows, but every sport has them. The team that floated around for a while and was continually in position to succeed and for whatever reason couldn't get the ultimate prize for a long or longer stretch of time. And people kind of turned against them and made fun of them. And then once they cashed in, everybody did the 180 and went, oh yeah, okay, now we get, now we understand what the game plan was. They were just maximizing the amount of chances they had to win this championship. I mentioned the 1997 Broncos before on the show. It's a really, really great example in this respect, the career of John Elway, where they were competitive the whole time, again and again, in position, making the playoffs, making a Super Bowl, in position, not cashing through, in position, not cashing through. And it wasn't until the final two years of his career, 1997 and 1998, that the Broncos were able to kind of fulfill the promise that they'd shown. And maximizing the stabs at the at the crown, if you will, it paid off at the very end. 2007 Colts, another good example within the NFL. Um, by this time, Manning and, and that team had you know been making the playoffs pretty consistently every year. At that point, Tom Brady had won three Super Bowls. That was the team they just couldn't manage to get through in the AFC. And by this season, everyone had agreed that, well, yeah, for whatever reason, Manning just can't win and Brady's got his number and this team, for whatever reason, isn't cut out to, to overcome this obstacle in their path, much less win the Super Bowl after they get out of the AFC. And 2007, they turn it on its head, and including the AFC Championship game when they go down by 21 to Brady and then they come storming back and win that AFC title game and then beat the Bears in the Super Bowl. And then we do a 180 and say, oh, we get the vision, we celebrate this. This is how you go about doing things, which is funny that we can't really acknowledge it when a team is good for, you know, seven plus years as the Colts were during that frame until they actually have cashed in on it. Uh, the NBA is filled with a bunch of those. 2011 Mavs is probably the best prime example from the recent past because that was a team that floated around for a long time and was there, whether with Nash and Nowitzki or after Nash left with just Nowitzki and the core of people they chose to build around with him. There's a bunch of years that the Dallas Mavericks were there in the Western Conference and making the NBA Finals once in 2006 and just lost a strange series to the Heat. The Mavericks were up 2-0. They're up by double digits in Game 3 of that series, up 2-0 on the road. And the Heat come back. Gary Payton, strangely enough, hit some big shots down the stretch of Game 3 
Dwayne Wade starts shooting at seems like 80 free throws a game in game four and five and six, and the Heat come back and win that. And the Mavs grab the number one seed in the entire league the next year. Nowitzki wins the MVP, and we're like, okay, this is going to be the year. You know, they're just too good, and they're going to finally cash in. Upset, round one, Golden State Warriors. And this was kind of the moment that many people, myself included, just thought, eh, I don't know. Maybe they just don't have it. You know, maybe they're more of a paper tiger in the regular season. And the things that they need to pull on in the playoffs, they're maybe not as good as those things. So they go on for a couple more years, and we just think they're dwindling off and leaving. And then the amount of stabs that they gave themselves pay off in 2011. They rock through the West. They beat the Heat in LeBron's first year there, and they're NBA champions. Bucks last year, I've talked about that a lot, so I won't go really in-depth, but comes from the same place. Smaller time frame, but a three-year window where people really got on board with the idea that, uh, I don't think you can win in this way. We know that you're competitive. We know that you're good in the regular season. We know that you're technically in position to succeed, but every year we think there are a handful of teams that are better than you. But, you know, you put yourself in position to make the margins matter. And that's what happened last year with the Bucks. That's why they won the NBA title. Hockey, Tampa Bay Lightning, again, very good example. Stanley Cup champions the last two years. A lot of years before that where they were really good floating around the top. And at first we were excited. They were young. They were talented. They were up and coming. Then they didn't win. Then they didn't win. And everybody turned on them and said, this team just doesn't have the moxie. They don't have the grit. They don't have the intrinsic thing that you need in order to win. And then for whatever reason, they did. <laughs> and now we celebrate the process, we celebrate the vision of all of these teams, okay? I, I like talking about this because every year, in every single sport, there are always a, a decent amount of teams that are floating around the top, whether within that individual season or they've been there for years, that haven't necessarily cashed in. They haven't won a championship. And whenever they lose in the playoffs, the tendency is always to go, well, there's just some fatal flaw that will always prevent them from winning. And that's just not really how I see it. I always see it as, mm, they might not be as good as these other teams, but if you trust the idea that if you get enough cracks at it, one time fate will be on your side, then that's why you put yourself in position. That's why you keep plugging along. That's why you trust this process of just putting yourself in position to succeed and then going from there. Um, and, and, you know, it's not a guarantee because nothing really is in life. There are plenty of teams who've been left by the wayside using this strategy. Contenders who never quite had the correct alignment of talent, of coaching, of opposition in front of them, and of simple luck, the margins. My hometown basketball team is kind of a masterclass example of all of that, the Utah Jazz. The Tail end of the Stockton Malone era, the 97-98 Utah Jazz, NBA Finals both years, losses in Game 6 both years to the Chicago Bulls. Incredibly successful basketball team for a long period of time with that twosome, Stockton and Malone. Jerry Sloan is the coach. Um, just in position, in position, in position, in position. For whatever reason, not breaking through, not breaking through, not breaking through. And they never found that alignment. We know that team was talented. We know they had a great coach. Opposition sometimes, just you were in the wrong place at the wrong time in 1997 and 1998. You had to go against Jordan and the Bulls. That kept a handful of teams away from winning a title over the course of the 90s. 
uh, just random luck. Didn't necessarily go your way in the way that sometimes you need in order to win a championship. So I'm thinking about all of this as Georgia is coming back from an 18-13 deficit in the fourth quarter and then winning going away because Georgia is, is a really good example of this particular concept. And I came across something that I want to read. It comes from Bill Connolly of ESPN. He has a metric system. He, he calls it SP+. It's just a way of measuring efficiency for a team on a play-by-play basis. So kind of boxing out all of the noise that can come from a traditional box score. And just saying, how successful are you every single play over the course of time, right? So there's a couple paragraphs here that I want to read about Georgia and about this idea that I've been talking about. Just, hey, you put yourself in position to succeed enough, well, then you hope and mathematics tells us at some point that has to pay off. Not always, but at some point it has to pay off. So this comes from Bill. Georgia's national title run in 2021 was in no way a plucky underdog story. There was no upstart here, no blessed run of close wins. It was, first and foremost, simple regression to the mean. The universe had proved incredibly effective at coming up with creative new ways to keep a ring off Georgia's proverbial finger, and it finally ran out of ideas. From 1981 to 2020, this was one of the most steadily successful programs in the country. The dog's average percentile rating in SP Plus in those 40 years was 84.8%, ninth best in FBS. Each of the eight teams above them, Ohio State, Florida, Florida State, Alabama, Miami, Michigan, Nebraska, Oklahoma, won national titles. The eight directly below them also won at least one. USC, Penn State, Notre Dame, Auburn, Tennessee, Texas, LSU, and Clemson. But Georgia, which rode freshman Herschel Walker in a string of tight wins to the 1980 championship, had come up dry ever since. End quote. So I love all this. And I love the illustration through his metric system, which I really, I really think SP Plus is a very valuable commodity and thing to look at. And I like that over the last 40 years, these teams that on a percentile basis, you're saying, all right, well, these are the 17 teams who have sustained the best amount of success, the teams that have been floating around most constantly over the last 40 years. All of those teams have at least one national title. That's kind of an illustration of the idea. If you float around enough, at some point you're going to have to cash through. And Georgia has been the one that's kind of stood out uh, because they've had so many close calls over the years, especially within the last, you know, 20 with Mark Richt as their coach and Kirby Smart, a couple couple coaches who've been awesome collegiate football coaches and who've also had an incredible amount of just close calls that have prevented them from playing for a national title or winning a national title even since 2012 when they were one play away from winning the SEC championship against Alabama uh, they stall out at the five-yard line at the end of the game, and they presumably would have beaten Notre Dame in that national title game. Or a couple years back when they're in overtime with a chance to beat Alabama for the national title and Tua throws the walk-off to Devontae Smith. They've just been around a lot. And I like the idea that out of all the narratives that you can take from this game, and there are a million, you know, I'm sure all of you have read and listened to a lot of stuff about all of the things that went into this game. But at its most core understanding, uh, this was 
a win that proves the point, hey, you need to be around constantly. You trust that at some point you will regress to the mean. Now, when you're around constantly, the idea is that you want to maximize the chances that the margins go in your favor. Earlier this week, I had a show about the margins. If you haven't listened to it, I would encourage you to do so because I'm going to be talking about that a lot as the NFL playoffs are happening because all of these games are decided by some crazy stuff. And the very next show I record uh, next week after wildcard weekend, I promise you I will go in depth about a lot of the football games that are going to occur over this weekend. But the idea is always this stuff can be just decided by weird random chance. And so at that point, the more stabs you have at it, the better chance you have of regressing to the mean, of getting a title to fall your way. So for Georgia, that was as simple as just put together these good teams. Sometimes you're going to lose. And this year, some stuff is going to go your way. Uh, for the national title game, it was John Mechie, Alabama's second best receiver, had already tore his ACL in the SEC title game. So he's out for the national title game. And within the national title game itself, Jamison Williams, one of the very best receivers in the nation, easily Alabama's number one weapon on offense. He does the exact same thing in the second quarter of that game. So their top two wideouts are out. And that plays a role. That's just margin stuff that you can't control. You know football is a physical sport. You know there are going to be injuries. It's an unfortunate aspect of it. But how are you going to weather that kind of stuff? And if it happens to you in the wrong position or to the wrong player, you just know, man, we're kind of getting screwed this year. That's the way that this stuff sometimes works. And in other years, it happens to the opposition. And you don't, you're not happy about it. But you're like, okay, this is why you put yourself in position over years and years and years. Because sometimes it will go our way and sometimes it will not. And I bring this up not as a diss. Because I think fans will hear stuff like that and go, well, we won regardless. We would have won either way. And maybe that's true. But I say it as an illustration, as a reminder of why you continually put yourself in position to succeed. Because it's just going to maximize the amount of times that the margins can fall your way, as they happen to do for Georgia on Monday night. Now, the second thing that I really was thinking about as an overarching theme of the season that really came to fruition as Georgia was closing out that game is something that I need to be reminded of sometimes. It's just another kind of simple idea and concept that there are different paths to the same goal. And sometimes I get bogged down and lost in the weeds and I kind of sometimes forget that. I think that I've been reading some golf stuff over this offseason for mental purposes because it's what I like to do in the offseason. Um, and I came across something that I found to be really interesting just as a way of approaching problems within the sport of golf, but really just anywhere at any time in any facet of life. And it's this contrast between the beginner's mind and the expert's mind um, and how normally you will look at the beginner and say, you're not really going to be equipped to solve problems in the manner that the expert can, which is true in many ways. But there's also kind of this alternative way of looking at it, which is the beginner will be more able to explore different avenues because they have no concept of what should work or what does not work. So they're going to come and see this problem and say, well, let's just brainstorm 3 million different things and try and, and all of them are like, not all of them, but most of them are going to be atrocious, but I might stumble my way onto things that an expert 
who sees the same problem and is informed by all of this past experience and understanding and scar tissue that comes from experience, they're gonna look at it and say, well, I already know all this stuff's not gonna work, so we got two options. So that's an interesting way of looking at things. You know, if, if you believe that you yourself are very well versed in a subject or understand something in depth and can maybe not say that you're an expert, but say, I have a really good understanding of this thing. And maybe sometimes I lock myself into a box because I understand it. And how can I tap a little bit more into that beginner side? The ability to think a little bit more outside the box, the ability to push aside some of that experience that you've accumulated and say, all right, let's start fresh. Let's think about this in newer terms. And I really thought about this as Georgia was winning the national title because in a small way, it was another illustration of this particular concept uh, because Saban is the expert of all experts. Saban's the best college coach of all time, in my opinion. And even Nick Saban shifted to the demands of this era. And I don't say that in a negative manner. I say that in the manner of the expert understood what football is in present day. Wheel and deal, run and gun, spread it out, throw it all over the yard. And he said, okay, we don't really play this way. And we've already won national titles with defense and running. But I'm willing to engage because I do think this is where the sport is headed. And so I'm just going to do it better than all of you. And he has. <laughs> As they shifted from that initial man ball approach into what Alabama currently is, which is just an explosive offense with NFL wideouts, NFL running back, NFL quarterback, NFL offensive line, and a willingness to just say, we're going to outscore you. First and foremost, we'll put up 50 a game. Alabama's been incredibly successful in doing that. And they have kind of put other people, myself included, into the expert frame of mind where the belief is, I mean, if Nick Saban is adhering to these demands and then just pounding everybody with it, it seems hard to believe that you can just win in, in a different way. And so now we've seen, yes, you can. And it's proven by his former protege, Kirby Smart, who used to be his defensive coordinator at Alabama for a long time, who took over at Georgia a handful of years ago, who brought in Saban's old approach. And along with it, kind of a little bit more of that beginner's mind. First-time head coach, obviously a vast understanding of football in a variety of ways. So don't think that he's a beginner in, in every facet. But as far as the particular approach to how can we win a national title right now in present day, I think Kirby approached it with more of a fresh perspective rather than saying, we got to get a spread offense. We got to do all this stuff. He leaned into what Alabama leaned into 10 years ago. And he said, we're going to recruit the hell out of this state and this country. And they have, and we're going to lean on our defense first and foremost. And they have, and we're going to run the ball on offense. We're going to be physical. And when we need to pass, we hope it's just going to be working play action off of our run game, which is a pretty stark contrast to the way that a lot of these other teams in the top 10 are playing football in present day, whether that's Alabama who they played or just these other teams that are around, you know, the Oklahoma's of the world or Ohio state or Ole Miss or go down the line of a lot of these teams that have been really good at football this year and in other years and have leaned into that more modernized version of the sport. Instead, we saw a different path to the same goal, the goal of national championship. It's not the approach that Clemson took and Alabama took and LSU took over the last handful of years. It's that 
10-year-old approach. It's the 50-year-old approach if you really want to lean that far because they beat Alabama 33-18 to on Monday. And what I'm taking away from the game, it's a great performance from the defense, first and foremost. It's that enormous 67-yard run from James Cook to give them life when they needed it in the second half. And to Stetson Bennett's credit, a dude who did not play that good of a football game and made a wide variety of mistakes um, when they needed him to make a handful of throws in the fourth quarter, especially on the go-ahead touchdown drive after his fumble, he made the three throws that he needed to make, including a really good deep end zone ball down the right sideline that put Georgia in front and then they never looked back. So those are the two things that I'm going to remember from this season and from this game. And I'd like to kind of wrap up the national title discussion with one more thing that came from the opposite side, came from the expert mind, the mind of Nick Saban, which when he says stuff, it really resonates with me because I just think he understands football on a level better than anybody within the sport. And he said something that really speaks to my soul, something that I write about um, and something that I talk about a lot on this particular podcast. Because after the game, he's talking about Bryce Young and Will Anderson. It's two best players, Heisman Trophy winning quarterback, and in my opinion, the best player in the nation, Will Anderson, defensive end. And like he, they were getting ready to leave, and he's just, hold on a second. And he wanted to stress this concept, and, and he said, I just want everybody to understand that these two players are not defined by one game. That's the quote that he said, not defined by one game. Uh, which I heard... And I think people heard and they go, yeah, that's sweet. You know, they've, they've had a great career and season. But I hear that and it says something to me beyond just the simple words. It says what I believe, which is always, if a player loses, it doesn't necessarily mean it was their fault. It doesn't necessarily mean that now moving forward, we can point to that game and say, well, this was the most important game of the season and they were on the losing end and that says something about the individual player. Sometimes it can just be as simple as you were a hell of a player and are and you were on the losing side and that's the way that it works in a team sport that has so many things factored into it. So those are all my thoughts from the game, from the national championship race and from Georgia's progression that has been over 40 years in the making to the national championship again. And there's one more thing that I want to talk about before I wrap up this show that I've been thinking about for the entire season, for actually into the off season, because the thing that really got my mind churning and I've not been able to stop with it is the realignment rumors and then confirmations that occurred in the off season and how that relates to the sport of college football as a whole what that means for the playoff, and all this kind of stuff. Um, expansion, obviously stole the offseason. Just kind of the idea of what does the future look like with Oklahoma and Texas moving to the SEC? What are the ripple effects that will follow? We're still not fully aware of all of those. And even knowing it in present day, and as much as I've talked about it, it's still really hard for me to comprehend what the entire sport is going to look like with Oklahoma and Texas lining up every week against SEC teams. It's going to be freaking weird. It's going to be very bizarre when it's that prime 130 CBS SEC slot and it's Oklahoma against Arkansas or it's Texas against Florida. It's going to be very strange. Uh, so that's, that's one thing. And we're still not sure the full ramifications of that, the 
way that power is going to be distributed now that the SEC is, which is already the most powerful conference along with the Big Ten and the sport, is now adding two of the most powerful teams outside of its conference to it. We don't really know what the ramifications are for that. But it's gotten me thinking even beyond that to the 20,000-foot view about the entire sport as a whole. And I, I can't state this enough. It is very strange how an entire successful sport has no governing body whatsoever. The NCAA, it's a sock puppet. We knew that for a long time. We've really understood that over the last handful of years. So then it's just it's dogs of varying sizes battling for scraps in the yard. That's what college football amounts to. The Great Dane over there, that's the SEC, and the big pit bull over there, that's the Big Ten, and the poor wiener dog right there with the bum leg, that's the ACC, and the chihuahua with no teeth, that's the poor Pac-12. I mean, just needs some milk or something. But this is the sport, and we know this now, and we know it even stronger than we ever have known it because we're seeing it play out over this last week. The other thing that has really kind of dominated the discussion in the sport of college football. As power brokers are getting together and they're trying to determine playoff expansion, how are we going to do it? And they've just barfed all over themselves because they're the dogs in the yard battling for scraps. There's nobody who's there to look out for the interests of the sport as a whole. I want to share something uh, that I read a couple days ago. came from Stu Mandel at The Athletic. On a virtual news conference last June... Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby, one of the four authors of a college football playoff working group proposal for an expanded 12-team format, all but beamed with pride over the end result of their last two years of discussions. I really feel like everybody that was in the room was looking at this from the standpoint of what is best for college football, he said of himself and his colleagues. SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey, Mountain West Commissioner Craig Thompson, and Notre Dame Athletic Director Jack Swarbrick, end quote. What is best for college football? Now, that's that's a really good place to wrap up this whole discussion. Because I remember when that was going on, and Bob Bowlesby, this is before the Texas-Oklahoma news came out, which turned out there's some very awkward dynamics amongst these four people because the SEC was literally raiding the two prominent teams in the Big 12 at that point in time, and Bob Bowlesby didn't know it, the Big 12 commissioner, and he's sitting down in a room with, amongst two other people, the commissioner of the SEC, Greg Sankey, and they're acting like, oh, yeah, we're just, you know, we're here, and we're, everybody in this room is looking out for what is best for college football, which everybody was excited about at the time, like, oh, great, maybe somebody can step up and at least do something on behalf of the sport as a whole, rather than just these fractions that amount to geographical uh, divisions and conference alignments and that kind of stuff. Now, when you hear that statement, what is best for college football, this is why the lack of a governing body is so strange because there's literally no one to look out for that. There's nobody to look out for the overall health of the sport as a whole. Again, go back to the analogy. It's just a bunch of dogs fighting for their own piece of meat in the yard. So all the people... Way more than this. All the conference commissioners, they're all getting together over the last week. They're having these playoff expansion talks. How are we going to do the 12 team? Yeah, let's get this going. I think a lot of people want it. And it falls flat because everybody's trying to fight for what is in the best interest of their own conference. 
And so now you hear quotes like that. Well, yeah, we used to work together and now we're not. And some of that is just kind of untrue. You know, it's pumping yourself up in the past and always holding yourself up as kind of, I was more moral and we, we used to work together in a manner that today's present people, they just don't. It's something that people really like to do in general. And I don't think that's necessarily true in the past, but it's really, really prominently involved with college football right now, the division that is occurring and will continue to occur, and that I don't really understand how this is going to change. Because in addition to the divisions that are created along conference lines or geographical lines, part of what makes this all so murky is that when you boil down that that simple line of what is best for college football, well, everybody has a different idea on what is actually best for it. Everybody. I have it. You probably have it. Conference commissioners have it. And it's tied into a lot of things. And, and everybody has their own individual idea on how to go about enacting their own individual idea for a better future for the sport. Some people like me, they say there shouldn't be a playoff. Some people say... 14 playoff, it's great. That's what we should stay at. Some people say we should expand the playoff to eight teams. Others say 12 teams, 16 teams, a million teams, whatever you want. Nobody can even really agree on what is best for the sport, much less the fact that there's no body in place to be able to even make an attempt at throwing darts at the dartboard and seeing what sticks. Now, I'm of the belief that College football, first and foremost, is an entertainment product. I believe that. I think that most people, if confronted with the idea, would say, yeah, I think that's true. And with that understanding, it's pretty easy for me to build up what I believe is the most entertaining version of college football, which I've talked about a lot in the show, so I won't go in super depth. But I don't think there should be a playoff. I think the best version and the most entertaining version of college football is a regular season that is a playoff every single week from week one up until the very end. And I don't think the national championship race is as important as we actually think. I think the entertainment that comes from the sport is tied into a lot of things that aren't necessarily that nice, shiny trophy that one team holds up at the end of the year. I think it's all the small things, the rivalries, the divisional races, the conference races, the non-conference games to prove that your conference is now better than this team, which ties into bowl games, all of that kind of stuff that I've spoken to a lot on past shows. That's my own personal belief. A lot of people disagree with that. A lot of people think that the other options are significantly better for entertainment purposes, that a 12-team playoff would be significantly more entertaining or a 16-team or whatever. So you start to understand the crux of the issue and the problem and how on kind of a fatalistic note, it looks like, I don't really know how this gets better. But that's just my opinion. And I am one person. And again, I will reiterate, I think that every single person who follows this sport has probably a slightly different version of what they think is in the best interest of the sport, what makes it most entertaining, and why they themselves are drawn to it in the first place. So... I'll turn it around and ask you the question that I think is worthy of thought and worthy of discussion. What is best for college football?
Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. As a reminder, please subscribe and download to this show. That helps us immensely on our side. Please also, if you can, leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That also helps us immensely. And last but not least, if you enjoy this show, please share it with other sports fans in your life. I'm very confident if you do, that they will like it as well. Thank you and peace.